Please turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11, I'll read 19 through the end of the chapter. Let us hear God's word. Now when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which... When they had came, come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came, And had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now this Lord's Day afternoon... I come to seek to encourage us that the same God that was at work in the church in Antioch is the same God we serve today. Our God has not changed. And just as he did these great works in the apostolic period, he is yet doing these great works at present, and he certainly can do these great works through us, his people, assembled here and those we represent in our own congregations. So to do so, let me briefly, I hope, bring us up to where we're at in Acts 11 before we begin to look at this passage. Obviously, Jesus uh, has been resurrected. uh, And in his 40-day ministry, we find in Acts 1, um, Luke summarizing that teaching as he taught on the kingdom of God. If you remember in verse 6 there of Acts 1, the disciples asked the question, well, when is the kingdom coming? When will you come back? Jesus then answers that question. 
first he says, that time is set by the Father. In other words, he's basically saying, not yet. But then he goes on to say, you remain here, pray, and I will send my spirit to you. In other words, he's saying, already. The kingdom of grace will have a new epoch when the spirit comes upon them. And yet, it's not the end yet. The kingdom of glory has not yet arrived. But he tells them to go into Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the world, which is basically the outline that Luke then follows throughout the book of Acts. If you remember in, verse, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we actually find the beginning of Luke speaking about this persecution that's occurred in Jerusalem. There in those first few verses of chapter 8, right after the death of Stephen, we're told that there's been a dispersion of the Jewish believers from Jerusalem. Then Luke is pleased to divert from that slightly and talk about Simon the sorcerer. Then he speaks of the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Then he discusses the conversion of Paul. And then he also uh, then speaks of Peter and Cornelius and Peter's coming to more fully understand that the gospel is to the Gentiles. And then it's in chapter 11, he basically picks up again talking about this persecuted group of believers. Here in verse 19, he talks about believers that are scattered. Then he talks about Barnabas being sent and Paul then, or Saul, being brought in verse 26. I want to suggest that when God scattered the persecuted Christians into Antioch, he called them to Antioch. He called Barnabas to Antioch through the Presbytery of Jerusalem, and he called Paul to serve in Antioch for that time. So we're going to look at the call of these persecuted Christians, Jewish Christians, the call of Barnabas, and the call of Saul, or the Apostle Paul. Let's first consider the call of these disciples. First, in verse 19, we read these words. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but only, but unto the Jews only. Okay, here we see scattered believers, persecuted. Do you think they might have been fearful? They'd just been persecuted in Jerusalem. They probably didn't have two men in a truck move them to Antioch. Their business probably didn't pay for their travel expenses. They probably could only take what they could carry with them. Do you think we might, you might be a little disturbed? Do you think you might tend to not want to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ? quite as boldly as you did before. But they continued to speak. It says here in the King James, they preached. But literally, the the word that's translated preached here 
Um, They were preaching the word. It really means they were discussing or talking about the word. They weren't talking about what they understood. They were talking about what they understood God's word said. They were speaking God's word. God in his providence had called them there. He had called them there to likely, as many say, the third great and most strategic city in the t- of that time. And they're discussing the word. But they're only doing it to Jews. They, they come out of their comfort zone at some level, but they're not prepared to speak to the non-Jews. There's already been dispersed Jews there, so there's already synagogues there of Jews that don't know about Messiah. They're comfortable speaking to them, and they do. But then we're told in verse 20 that there's another group, and some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've just been told in verse 19 that some of these scattered Jews went to Cyprus. Now we're told that some from Cyprus in another location, Cyrene, they come to Antioch. So we can't be exactly sure of the migrations and who went where. But what we know is they were preaching unto the Grecians. Now, I believe here, Luke is telling us as you find, if you just look at a dictionary, you open a dictionary, look at a word, it has more than one, almost every word has more than one meaning, doesn't it? Well, when Luke refers to the Grecians in Acts 6, it's pretty clear that he's referring to the Jewish people who speak Greek not only in the marketplace, but also in their own homes. But here I think it's clear, most commentators would agree, that here Luke seems to be using it that say that they're speaking of Greeks, they're speaking of heathen, they're speaking of those outside the church, those outside the Jewish people. There's now a larger cultural barrier that's being bridged here. First they're preaching to Jews, now there's another group of individuals who are comfortable, who likely were Grecian Jews, so they had been involved in the Greek culture enough that it wasn't too hard for them to reach out and preach the gospel to those uh, who were Greeks, those that were not of Jewish descent, those that had not been routinely attending worship on the Saturday or Sabbath worship and hearing the word of God in the synagogues routinely. They're going beyond that. The gospel's now gone past Samaria into the uttermost parts of the earth. Now they're up in Syria. And here, the word preaching is not the same word we've just seen in the previous verse. Here, the word preaching literally is from the word that we get evangelism from. They're evangelizing. It says they're evangelizing the Lord Jesus. You see, so were the people up front that were speaking the word of God. Obviously, the word of God centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's really beautiful, isn't it, how... There's one group of believers, they're speaking to those that are closer to them culturally, and they're speaking the word of God, it centers in Christ. And then there's another group that's evangelized. When we speak about Christ, we're evangelizing. 
Is everybody called to the same level of evangelistic effort as believers? No. No. We all have certain gifts and graces, but we are all called to speak a word for the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us is exempt from that command that Christ gave the uh, Gadarean demoniac. Go back to your people and tell them of what the Lord has done for you. We're all called to that. These persecuted Christians do not appear to have pastors present with them, no organized church, but they're proclaiming the gospel in their place and station, in the appropriate place for them. They're not preaching it with ministerial authority. They're not pretending they were granted that by the elders and apostles in Jerusalem. But God had done a great work in their heart, and they weren't fearful to tell anyone about what God had done in their lives. So God had called these people to this city. He's called you to the place that you presently live in to serve him in your generation in the place that he has you at present. True for all of us. So God's called the disciples, the scattered Christians. Then he calls Barnabas to Antioch. But first, notice what's happened in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Remind you of Isaiah 53.1, the arm of the Lord. Here's the hand of the Lord. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Faith and repentance. They believed and they turned unto the Lord. They turned away from their sin and they turned to God. They embraced Jesus Christ as their prophet, priest, and king. And it says... Many of them did so. There was evangelistic fruitfulness. Evangelistic faithfulness led to evangelistic fruitfulness. Is that always the case? No, no, no. And many times we have to labor on without a lot of evident fruitfulness. But here we have an example of fruitfulness. They sowed, and God was pleased to bless, and many came to faith. And so then we have the call of Barnabas to Antioch in verses 23 and following. When, let me just say here, I think here in this section, verses 22 through 24, we basically have two things. We have a caring presbytery and a caring missionary. A caring presbytery and a caring missionary. In verse 22 we read, Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Children, did you know that a church has ears? That's what Luke says. The church had ears. Why do you think they had ears? Why do you think they heard something about what was going on there? Well, I would contend 
They heard something because they were very attentive at listening. Some of their flock had to leave the place of their oversight and go elsewhere for safety. They cared about that flock. They wanted to know how things went with that flock. They were still responsible for that flock, even though that flock was far away from them. They were a caring presbytery in Jerusalem. We're told that at this point, back in chapter 8, that the apostles had all stayed in Jerusalem. So they cared. And when it came to them, they sent forth Barnabas, we're told, that he should go as far as Antioch. They decide to send a caring man to them to see what's really going on, to be on the ground, to do an exploratory visit, to see if this is real, and to see if it is, how can we help? And they said this man, Barnabas, a caring presbytery, sends a caring man. We're told elsewhere, Acts 4.36, that Barnabas' name was Joseph. So was Barnabas his real name or was it a nickname? It clearly means son of encouragement or son of exhortation. Why did they send him? Could have been, I would suspect his family situation probably made it a little bit easier for him than some. I suspect his disposition, he was a son of encouragement. He was also from Cyprus. Some of these people from Cyprus had already arrived there, were proclaiming the word. We can't be absolutely sure, but we do know that he was observant. Who, when he came, and had seen. And he saw the grace of God. As he met with the people, the report that they had believed and turned to the Lord was verified. He said, this is the real deal. And he was glad, like the angels in heaven that we read of, rejoicing. Praising God when one sinner is brought to faith. Just like the lost sheep, the lost coin, or the lost son. The angels rejoiced. And so was we, like Barnabas, rejoice. He was observant. He was cheerful. I think it's most likely that he was engaged in incorporating these believers into the church through baptism and their children. I think he would have understood the Great Commission. I can't be absolutely sure about that. We know that Luke's account is shortened, right? It's not a detailed account of everything. But we're also told that he exhorted them. Right there, he's clearly fulfilling the third prong of the Great Commission. He's seeking to inform them about all that they are to believe and do from the Word of God. But it particularly says that they're to continue with purpose of heart or singleness of heart, that they would cleave to the Lord. 
In other words, in all the persecution that might face them in Antioch, they must continue to cultivate communion with God day by day. And that can be a great temptation for those that are in the midst of fighting for the truth. But this son of exhortation calls them to continue in that matter. And very interestingly, Luke says in the beginning of verse 24, four, he's going to give the reason why Barnabas was so observant, so cheerful, and so useful in his exhortations. Why was it? Because he was a good man. He was a morally upright man. He wasn't in this for himself. He wasn't looking to take credit for this expansion of the kingdom of God in Antioch. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And thus he was full of faith. I would contend we'll never be full of faith if we're not full of the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus' words in Luke where he informs us that, you know, our heavenly, our heavenly Father gives us the best gift. Therefore, what all we pray for, children? The Holy Spirit. Because what could be a better gift than the fresh effusions, fresh filling of the Spirit? That the Spirit would guide us in His Word, and direct us and assist us to keep us from falling when we're tempted, to assist us to put to death the deeds of the body, and to put on the fruits of the Spirit himself. So we've seen these two, two types of scattered Christians preaching the word, discussing and evangelizing, right? Not authoritatively preaching. Now we've seen Barnabas come and do an exploratory visit. He says, this is the real thing. He helps incorporate and begin to organize these people. I believe it's kind of moving from a very disorganized situation to somewhat more orderly form. And yet now, Barnabas, who knows there's a possibility of things getting a little, in, a little disorganized if he was to leave, chooses to go on a trip to find Saul. So he's willing to take a little risk in the short term for some long-term benefits. And so we see then the call of Paul to Antioch in verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, we see Barnabas seeking Paul's assistance. And then in verse 26, we see Saul recognizing the need and the call of the Lord through Barnabas. In verse 25 we read, Then departed Saul, or Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. We already read from Luke that Barnabas was willing to go as far as Antioch. It's suggesting Barnabas was leaving his comfort zone to go to Antioch. Now he's going to have to go further north and try to figure out where Saul's at. Children, he couldn't get on Facebook or Twitter or something else and say, hey, where are you now, Paul? 
I want to come and have face-to-face with you. He had to go chase him down. So he chases him down, seeking Saul. Again, I'm going to read between the lines. I'm not going to say it's absolutely for sure, but I suspect that Barnabas must have had some sense that the Jerusalem Presbytery would be comfortable with what he was doing. He clearly would not be a man if he was a good man. He wouldn't go beyond his remit. He wouldn't go beyond what those in authority had directed him to do. He's not innovating here. But he recognized the need there had gotten so great that it was more than he could handle himself. In other words, he wasn't afraid to play second fiddle. He was first fiddle. He was the only fiddle. But he's prepared to go get somebody else. And when that somebody else arrives, it's not long before it's very obvious that Paul's gifts are far superior than Barnabas. I kind of like this. I was thinking about this. It kind of reminds me of William Farrell and John Calvin. Farrell talking Calvin into staying in Geneva, knowing the need in Geneva. Pharrell could have ended up being the big man in Geneva if he just encouraged Calvin to, to move on. Maybe I can give you a few bucks and you can get out of here. You can go do your studies. But Pharrell was more concerned about the glory of God and the good of the sheep in Geneva. And so was Barnabas here. He had no interest in being the big man. He just wanted the sheep to be taken care of. So I think he was operating under that principle we find uh, in Ecclesiastes 10, 9 through 12. Two are better than one. And he goes on, Solomon goes on to say, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Kind of the principle we operate by having three elders at minimum on our sessions. I suspect Barnabas would have been well aware of Jesus' practice when he sent the 12 and the 70 out two by two. And so he goes to seek Saul. And when he finds him, obviously Saul must have recognized that this was God's call upon him. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. He found him, and he brought him. But I don't think Paul went kicking and screaming. Paul sensed the call, and he came. And it came to pass that they preached or taught the whole year. There's no significant language barrier or educational barriers here. There was a cultural barrier, but not language or education. It says they assembled themselves with the church. They were engaged in worship, but they taught. And in that kind of culture at that time, they were likely teaching the people for several hours every day of the week. I estimate that means there were probably close to a thousand sermons or lectures that these people were exposed to in one year. That's the kind of number of things we might be exposed to in five to ten years, depending on how many services and 
Christian education opportunities we have in our local congregations. They were saturating these people with the word of God. We're not told here that there were many more incorporated. I don't think that it means there weren't, but I think the focus here of Luke is now there's a great many of people that are believers. Now it's time to get some roots. And so Barnabas and Saul are engaged in teaching so that the people might be firm in the faith. Can you imagine having these kind of men? I, kind of, I was kind of thinking about this this afternoon as I was coming back from lunch and thought just how Barnabas is like Mr. Greatheart and Paul is like Mr. Valiant for truth. Both of them encompassed both of those men. I think Bunyan kind of suggests that the, the, the godly minister ought to be both in one, right? But each had unique strengths. They complemented one another. And then we're told that it's here in Antioch that the disciples are first called Christians. They're called anointed ones. Calvin commenting says uh, they're named after their captain who is Christ. They're Christ warriors. Christ is their captain. They go forth. What an amazing work of God's grace establishing this church. Christians. That's what we're still called today. I'm sure some of you remember this little historical antidote. Do you remember when there was a young man named Alexander serving under Alexander the Great? Uh, And he was a little fearful in battle. It's said that Alexander came to that young man one night by the campfire and said to Alexander, change your name or mend your manners. In other words, don't, I don't, you can't be called Alexander if you're not going to meet the call. Christian. Mend your manners. May we all be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, our captain, our savior, our Lord. He's called us to it. We've been called by this name. We've undergone persecution, and we're seeing more and more of it broadly and sometimes even personally. But it ought not to cause us to fear. The Lord is with us. He's promised to be with us to the end of the age. He did a marvelous work there in Antioch. He can do it. He is doing it around the globe. He can do it amongst us in our congregations. And if he doesn't, and he's not, we're not pleased to see many converts in our day, if we're faithful, we can know that God will say, when we meet with him, well done, good and faithful servant. This church remained faithful. We see an example of it here at the end of the chapter. These new Gentile churches 
hear that Mother Church is hurting, they're already practicing connectionalism. They had a caring presbytery reach out to them, and then they're prepared to reciprocate with financial care. And then think about it. You just have to flip the page. I don't even have to flip the page in my Bible from Acts 11 to Acts 13. Acts 13.1. There are five prophets and teachers in Antioch. There's not one congregation there. They've got a presbytery themselves. And they're going to send out two men into what was then called Asia and Europe, at least to the Middle East, and to Greece, and to Italy. And eventually, Paul's desirous to go to Spain, we're told. We have no reason to believe after he was released from his first imprisonment that he didn't do that, as well as visit the island of Crete with Titus. from a little group of scattered, had to be fearful, had to be discombobulated, being moved from your home and having to run for your life and your family's life. God used that little group because it's him at work. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by the Spirit of the Lord. He's at work in His church. May He increase our faith. We believe. Help us, Lord. Increase our faith. Amen. Please turn in your... uh, Well, please stand for prayer. And then please remain standing. I'm going to remain standing to sing Psalm 67 and receive the benediction. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou art the same today, yesterday, and forever. Thou hasn't changed. Thou hast a heart for the world. Thou hast sent Thy Son into the world for Thy great love. We thank Thee that Thou hast called us as Thy people to testify of Thy grace and thy love shed abroad in our hearts through the Lord Jesus Christ, through thy Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thy gospel has reached even us. And we ask that thou wouldst be pleased to allow us in our place and station, in our unique place that thou hast placed us in, in our city, in our community, in our workplace, in our family, in our congregations. Be pleased to use us, O Lord. Help us to be diligent, but O help us most of all to not fail to be dependent upon Thee. For we can sow and we can water, but it is only Thee, it's Thee alone that gives the increase. Might Thou be pleased to increase Thy kingdom in days to come. Revive Thy church in the midst of the years we plead. In Jesus' name, amen.